0: Welcome to the ABOP podcast. ABOP is the Alliance of Black Orchestral Percussionists, a nonprofit organization that focuses on mentoring future generations of black percussionists. My name is Raynor Carroll. I am your host and an ABOP founder. Thank you for joining us. My guest today is an ABOP founder, Mr. Douglas Cardwell. Mr. Cardwell received his Bachelor of Music Education degree from James Madison University and his Master of Music in Percussion Performance from Rice University Shepherd School of Music. Mr. Cardwell was a fellowship recipient with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. Over the years, his teachers included Bill Rice, Richard Brown, Brian Delsignor, Ron Holdman, Salvatore Rabio, and Norm Fickett. Professionally, Mr. Cardwell is the former principal tympanist of the New Mexico Philharmonic. And just to name a few of his current titles, Mr. Cardwell is principal timpanist of the Santa Fe Pro Musica, Performance Santa Fe, and the Sphinx Symphony Orchestra. Mr. Cardwell also operates a percussion studio, DC Percussion in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and is the owner and founder of the Lotus Soundbath. Douglas, welcome to the ABOP podcast. Hey, hey, how you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. It's
1: always a pleasure to hear your voice, man. Oh, same
0: same here, same here. So I just mentioned some of your accolades and what you do, and there's so much more. I didn't include everything. What is the glue that keeps all of this together
1: for you? Variety. It really is. Um yeah. I don't know when I learned that it's okay to do different things and not just one thing. <laughs> I visited with a couple of friends that used to play out in uh, actually San Francisco and found this is when I was a kid You know, I was playing, um, I was probably in grad school or just out of grad school. One of the percussionists in the orchestra, she says, yeah, I, I'm an avid woodworker. Because, you know, when you're young and you don't have a job yet, all one focus is just practice until you get a job, you know? Right, right. Just that permission that uh, seeing somebody else that, doing something like that while they have a major symphony job, uh, it was pretty astonishing to me I mean yeah. you don't understand it when you're on the other side when you don't know literature <laughs> when you're learning literature right and then after I started learning all that literature and different things start to open up and, and come to me I've always been an avid have had an avid interest in business so that's hence the real estate hence the mallet making company hence the Lotus sound bath and whatnot and and the percussion studio Right. And it's really a business. Some people just think of it as I'm just teaching, but it's really your practice. So getting tools and getting help from other people to not just grow that, but make it into a business that is sustainable right. and is not just you sitting down, just teaching.
0: Right. Right. And all these things you do, they're a part of you. And let me start with Lotus Sound Bath. How did that come about?
1: <laughs> Long story. That's a, um, we got time. <laughs> all right. Unfortunately, I was rear ended and I had to take a leave of absence from the orchestra. And having that time away from the orchestra, um, at that time, the orchestra, we, we, we were having some issues. So being away from that energy was really astonishing. Mm. And one of my other venues that I've had the ability in real estate to be able to flip some properties and go in and rehab them in these different neighborhoods. And when I was in one of these neighborhoods, I knew it was gonna be beneficial to the seller. I mean, myself, beneficial to the buyer, beneficial to the lender, beneficial to many people. But then I was really astonished when neighbors started coming out saying, we are so happy you're taking this dilapidated property and helping our neighborhood. And that was so touching to me that one, they would come out and say something because our communities now are not really communities. People just stay in the house, they don't come out. So receiving that energy and being away from the orchestra at the same time, I said, you know, if if I never go back to the orchestra, that'd be perfectly fine. That's not who I am. I was okay to be ready to do that. So I made a little mission with myself that no matter what I did, um, it didn't have to be music. It'd be great if it was because that's what I know how to do best. That's what I put my most of my time into. But I wanted to be a triple or multiple win situation where many people were benefiting from so after i made that many people start coming to me about this this sound bath thing right i didn't i already knew about it and people many years back had told me you need to be doing this because they knew i was an avid meditator and believed in that system but i was still kind of tunnel vision into the orchestra world so i wasn't ready to allow that so it was a perfect timing and then i started playing for people studying um the playing part was easy a lot of people who get into this business they understand the healing part or the, the medicinal part where I know what to say and how to, because there's a lot of people who are in yoga, a lot of people who are in maybe meditation Mm -hmm. and things or or acupuncture of that nature, but they have, they struggle or how to they struggle. They don't know how to play the instruments. Right. And so that was an easy thing for me. So as I kept playing more people were saying, you really need to take this farther. And that's what I did. And, um, it's become a full practice.
0: That's a path that you didn't see, I would assume. <laughs> Absolutely not. But you went with it.
1: Yeah, extremely welcoming. Um, when I play for people and who've had several sound baths, you know, one of the big things that I get feedback is I've never heard one like yours before and how not inclusive for it was, but how different it was. Or it was just about, how they say grounding, these are words that I'm using from other testimonials, grounding. Mm-hmm. I've never heard that much depth. I've never went that far under. And again, it's about we know how to blend sounds. We know how to read a room. We know how to adjust to a room. I mean, that's all we do for a living. And being able to do that with these instruments is a benefit. And I use that benefit to really serve others. When it it ricochets back on a win-win basis, it's, Right. It's, You want to keep doing it.
0: So you're not just there giving therapy, you're receiving
1: it too. Absolutely. I, when I play a session, every session that I play, I always feel better afterwards. (laughs) Literally always, maybe with exception, of maybe one, (laughs) because there was some chatter going on Uh. that I thought my clients could hear, but they couldn't hear it that much because their brain waves and they were tuned into the sound bath instruments. Right. They barely heard it, but I did. That's great. And that's another lesson for myself that everything that I hear, they may not. Right. So that's big one is assumptions. I think they do, but they don't. So.
0: Yeah. So could you tell us what a so-called typical session might be like in the sound bath?
1: So a typical session, I'll do an, um, an intake most of the time is groups. So I'll get them to check in with how they're feeling. Most people who are coming in, they know how to do that. Some people don't, you know, it's like a therapist or something. Some people have never really listened to themselves or checked in with themselves. So they don't know how to do that. So you give them some small tools on how to do that. That intake can last anywhere from five minutes to 15 minutes, depending. Hopefully I try to keep it under 10 because I really want to be playing at least 40 minutes if not 45 minutes. And then it's pure sound and my sound is all uh, natural, no enhanced instruments or anything like that. That's pre-recorded. A lot of people
0: Nothing electronic.
1: Nothing electronic, nothing amplified. A lot of people do that. And that's okay if they want to do that. My idea is all natural. I think it's how it moves through, how it moves energy, I think is huge. So after I play, um, I let them know that that's going to be a minute, maybe two minutes of nothing coming from the sound bath as they start to understand or figure out where they are. Because after you play, you really don't know where you are. Uh-huh. Um, I've been on the other side. It's a wonderful feeling. And this right. is without any drugs or anything, you know, <laughs> but it feels like you've been floating through another universe or whatever, because you're really training people how to be present.
0: Yeah.
1: And when you're present, you really don't have any worries mm. you, you, when you're truly present right unless you've been chased at the moment by a lion and that could be the case (laughs) in the present moment you could be chased by a lion and you're running for your life right that's different but that's rarely the case yeah it's rarely the case when you're really present we're just sitting here talking we have enough money we have enough food we have enough and that's when you really feel that you have all the weight all the stuff all the chatter it goes away but that's presence and most of us we live there maybe 20 30% 30% of the day, right. most of us live in the future, yeah. including myself. Yeah. I do too, <laughs> but having tools to come back to, I, I attune it to playing an instrument. When we play out of tune, you don't stay playing out of tune. You come back into playing in tune and you get out right. of tune, you come back in. You have different tools to be able to use. So as they're coming to, they're in a, a theta state of mind. We have five different brain waves. We have gamma, which is go, go, go. That's the multitasking beta, alpha, theta, down to delta, which is dormancy and sleep. And even when we're at sleep, you know, we have dreams, dreamscapes, the brain is still working. But in that theta state, it's a state where you have so much opening to be receiving because the chatter is not happening. You're, you're, you're really in more presence. So when they're in that state and they're coming out of that, the last 10 minutes, you know, there's no sound coming out anymore. So now I'm guiding them to just breath, Really paying attention to presence, where they have arrived at the moment, because it's a different state than when they walked into the room. And just watching them move slowly, there's no rush. And you give them time. So, you know, we finish, again, that's about 45 minutes of pure sound to give them time to when they're walking out of the room. They're still a little aloof, but it's enough time that they can still go drive a car or do whatever else they need to do. Yeah
0: you know this seems perfect for a serious musician it seems to me that this would be a tool to use to be able to focus on your instrument to focus on practice time so that all the distractions that there are in life don't come into, into your session, you know, into your practice time. Do you find that, that that correlates directly? It's, it's like, for me, I can relate it to when I'm practicing and I get into that flow where time is meaningless and I end up finding out I've been there in the room for two or three hours, but it's and been it, a joy, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And it never feels like the time that actually, actually passed. Right, right. Right. And people also mentioned it felt like 15 minutes. Some <laughs> people, every once in a while, some people will say, well, it felt like two hours. It's never the amount of time that it normally seems because they're totally taken away from any and all of that. Yeah. And in practicing, it is the exact same thing. And when you're sincere in practicing, you the only reason you may have your phone in the practice room is to record. <laughs> it needs to be on airplane mode. <laughs> I mean... I, I know people that'll take calls, you know, when they're yeah. practicing. You know, yeah. uh, that's yeah. not that's not intense practicing. If you're really practicing for something like, if you don't have a job and you want a job, right? That's how you need to be practicing. Absolutely, yeah. Focus, focus.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, let me ask you: How many younger folks do you have that come to the sound
1: bath? Oh, that's a great question. Great question. <laughs>
0: when I say younger,
1: let's say twenty-five and under. Yeah, 25 and under, uh, 5%. Yeah, uh, it's not quite 10. It might be 8, but that's, that's a small number. Yeah, that's the smallest percentage. And
0: I'm sorry to generalize or whatever the right word is, but I think that's a group that could use a lot of this. It's the most, right. to, to remove a lot of this multitasking, which I feel that through multitasking, you don't really get good at any one thing. That's true. You do, you master being able to do three or 14 things at a time, but you do none of them. I'm sorry to say this, but I feel like you perhaps do none of them really well. And, you know, there are some things, whether it's practicing for an orchestra audition, that needs to be at that level where it's not just something you're doing while you're in a room or whatever, but it be, needs to be your focus. So I could see, of course, anybody can benefit from this, but specifically with what we're dealing with, some of the younger generations to be able to retune their brains and relax and let the stuff go for the moment, you know, it can come back later, but to be able to focus on what is being presented and what your, what your project is, that's, that's a great Great tool to have at your access. Yeah,
1: well, I have a double residency. What I'm doing with some universities right now, I'll go in and do a timpani master class. But after they find out that I, I have this practice, I've played for full departments a sound bath during that time, and you can see them. And these are people who are in college, so they're twenty-something. Right. Man, they're squirming. They don't know how to sit. They don't know how to sit still. They just don't. Know how to, most of them don't. A few do. And again, without me assuming just because you're squirming doesn't not mean you're not receiving, Right. but I have had some people say, I just couldn't shut my mind down. I just couldn't do it. Yeah. And I would like to sit down with them to give them different tools. They just don't have tools and they practice not doing that. They don't realize they're practicing it, but they're practicing on their phone all the time right. or doing whatever all the time, the multitasking, or whatever you do the most, that's what you'll get better at. Absolutely.
0: So then let's back up. Number one, where'd you grow up?
1: (laughs) You want the real, the real place or the the next largest city?
0: (laughs) I want the real place.
1: (laughs) I grew up in Rustburg, Virginia. Ah, Okay. Rustburg, Virginia. Most people haven't heard of it. It's the, it's the county seat of Campbell County. Most people haven't heard of Campbell County (laughs) and it's quite rural. And the next largest city would be Lynchburg, Virginia. It's in yeah. central Virginia.
0: Right. Okay.
1: And that's still about two hours from Richmond, about two and a half hours south of D.C. And it was a wonderful place to grow up. I grew up adjacent to a tobacco farm and corn farm. My grandfather had that. And being able to go out anytime, you know, there really wasn't crime crime. Mean, Nobody was going to come out that far that it takes out to take something. <laughs> but um we had a basement and then a full acre that my grandparents gave to my my dad every kid had an acre right so uh-huh. but the backyard was that and then and then that was the forest that my grandfather owned I could walk another quarter mile half mile through the woods to my through the to my grandmother's house wow. and it sounds kind of cliche but that's what I did. <laughs> now, why it was so wonderful when I did start playing drums, man, I played all the time. I mean, I, I, the drum set was in the basement, the drum, the snare drum was in the basement, all that stuff. How it, old were you at this point when you just started? I was around 11, I think, when I got in a formal band class. I, no, that's not true. It was 10 or 11. Uh-huh. Um, the story goes, I auditioned for beginning band. My band director had a teacher helping them as many do it at that time. I said, I wanted to play percussion. They gave me some rhythms to play to match them. I thought it was easy, which Mm -hmm. to me, I still thought it was easy. I could hear (laughs) rhythms by that time. And um, they said, okay, you check off for percussion, get to beginning band the first week. And man, it was a bait and switch, man. (laughs) I'm not kidding you. She, she, She said, we're not having any percussionists in beginning band. You have to play a lyrical instrument. This was before bell kits. Right. So I had to pick a different instrument. I had to pick, I had to pick another instrument. I was a little frustrated, so I picked saxophone. I played saxophone for two weeks and I quit. I just, (laughs) I didn't like it. And my mom, I don't know what I said, what I did, but she got me private lessons. I don't think she could really afford it. They couldn't afford private lessons, but Mm -hmm. they got me private lessons for the first year. And it was great. And when I say it was great, I mean, it was great. I, fi- I finally tracked down my first teacher. His name is Vance Gordon. He's still teaching, believe it or not, in wow. Boston area. Can huh. we keep in touch? I can't tell you. I mean, I was just delighted to be in the room with this guy anytime I would, could do anything. And, it, you know, it was just amazing. Right. I really just loved it, obviously. I mean, you know the people who are kind of doing this. You don't have to twist our arm to go go to exactly. the practice room. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So what made you pick percussion from the beginning? Because you said when you went to saxophone, it was not happening. Yeah, no, I didn't feel it. You didn't pick the violin, you didn't pick tuba. (laughs) Why the drums?
1: Um, The household that I grew up in, we had wonderful Motown sound. Mm. Great Motown recordings. And that was this one recording, in fact, that I tried to imitate. It was, the name of the track is called Funk, F-U-N-K. And it's by mako and it took me forever to track it down to be able to get that recording again it's a recording Mm -hmm. from 1977 Uh and it's on millennium records and it has this beat that sounds like you know an hbc band you know it has the drum line going man i was trying to comp that so i mean (laughs) i could play half of it i thought Uh i I thought i could right (laughs) and um but yeah i i yeah go check it out i mean that was the one thing i could not not listen to that recording right right. and it moved me it moved me like unbelievably that i wanted to be able to do that i would go downstairs and march around like i was in a marching band right right um and being from a small small town after i had private lessons so i go to sixth or seventh grade band sixth grade band and then by seventh grade as a new band director and he comes to two of us once plays clarinet and then me, I would play percussion. She says, "How?" He says, "How would you like to be in high school marching band?" I was like, "I mean, you, you, you you're serious, right?" Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm in seventh grade. Because we could read music. The right. two of us could read music very, very well ahead of everybody else. This other person probably had no both of um, both of uh, her siblings who were music people. Who so we could read ahead of everybody else. Right. So yeah, I. Um, I was in high school marching band in seventh grade through 12th grade. Wow. And it was on un- again. I got to see what the seniors were doing when I was in seventh grade, you know, after rehearsal or whatever, they're fixing drums. I'm leaning over looking at everything, trying to figure this out. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was just a huge jump start in one aspect. And that was the rudimental aspect. Mm-hmm. And I played in practice all the time. I didn't have a keyboard. I didn't have a xylophone. I mm-hmm. didn't have a bell kit. I was ahead of everybody and everything else. But until it came about 10th grade, I said, I I think I want to be a music major. Pretty sure I want to be a music major. So I had to try to, I had to play catch up with, um, keyboard percussion. I had great group teachers. Mm -hmm. I never had private lessons again until 11th grade, 12th grade, when I was cramming to go to, go to college. That's the, Mm -hmm. the truth. And because I was so far ahead in the rudimental side, that really helped me. I made good grades also that helped a lot but I really had to play catch up on marimba. Yeah, and so, piano skills.
0: But what did you
1: practice on?
0: Did you have access to an instrument to practice on?
1: I, by the time I was in 10th grade, I would um, stay after school a little right. after and play on the xylophone if I needed to be working on something like that. I, my school did not have a marimba. Right. What did I, I wrote a percussion I could write too, I, used, I, I could write. Mm-hmm. So by the ninth grade, I was writing the book for the 10th grade. By the 10th grade, I was writing the percussion book for my high school. In 12th grade, I was teaching another high school band camp because my band director had a friend that had a, just got a job across town and they didn't have a drum, drum instructor. Mm-hmm. Well, they knew I could do it. And I said, you, know, I I you going to pay me to do this? <laughs> it, was, it was great. You know, because I'm a you know, high, yeah. high school kid doing what you love. But yeah, I had to cram. I had to um, just stay after school, and then I would um, ask if, if the instrument wasn't being used, could I could I take it home? Right. I don't remember taking it home too often,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know. So, and honestly, I was probably I was probably memorizing. I probably memorized my my college audition intake, right. which was, I think it was I think it was them at eighteen. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Goldenberg. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. And then I wrote a percussion ensemble based on that, that I also presented when I was going into uh, my undergrad too. I see. Yeah.
0: So what, what would you say was the transition, or when did it happen when it went classical for you?
1: Man, I heard a recording. They, you know, they used to make these recordings great performances or something like that yes. back yes. in the day. Yeah. And um, it was New York playing Chike, Chike 4. And I again, here's another recording that I could not stop playing. Just couldn't stop playing it, <laughs> and and it had dynamics in it. So I would, you know, would have it turned down low to hear the soft stuff, but then the big part would come up, and my mom would say, "Turn that stuff down." She said, "Mom, you don't understand. This this music has dynamics." This is what to, it's all about. I was man. like, "Mr. Man, right?" <laughs> 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 man, she was not happy, but. um we got through that, but um, I wish the, all the color, all the different sounds, uh, the intricacies. And here's the sad, but this is an honest note. When I was listening to it, this is in high school as well. I didn't have the score, right? To chide for. Mm-hmm. So I'm listening to it, and bang, bang, dum, But i um, I put the emphasis in the wrong place. I had the downbeat in the wrong place. Right, right. First time I ever played it. Actually, first time I played it was actually after I had the job in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And, and we knew, whenever you hear something that's not in the right one, right? I don't know if you ever have. Of course. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's the Dickens to learn it the right way.
0: Absolutely. And I
1: got through it, and you had to, you had to, I had to play it so slow, so many yeah. times to yeah. relearn it. Right. And that was just a testament to just always, you know, get the score. <laughs> I mean, you can like it but if you can get the score or something if you can well but that or
0: one. don't listen to anything unless you have a score you know <laughs> which just don't means, listen. which <laughs> means you're not gonna listen to it you know <laughs> because yeah. like like you you experience you hear it you like it you listen to it many times and you just you just get used to where that one is and for you wherever exactly. it is where it yeah. where it feels for you and uh, and yeah. As we all know, that's not necessarily where where the one yeah. is. And, and the beauty of that for me in part, and I know you've done some African drumming, is for me, the West African drumming, specifically the djembe orchestra, so to speak, yeah. man, it is yeah. so cool because that one is not where you think you it think is. You think it is, that's right. And, you know, it, it, it comes natural. You know, originally the Malinke people, they didn't notate this stuff. No. You know, Yeah, that's right. They just played it and it wasn't meant to be just drummed it was danced and sang to and it was just this big thing and you ask them where the one is what what do you mean the one, the one. what is the one <laughs> this is what? the rhythm this is the beat the, the don't ask me where <laughs> how to break it down this is just it you know
1: what is this one
0: It's a completely different mind thing going on there. That we Westerners, uh, yeah. through European, Western European music, uh, a lot of it really leads us to where that strong beat is, and that's usually the beginning of the bar. But uh, as we, as you found out with Tchaikovsky, fourth, first movement, that's not so.
1: <laughs> I, I, I actually put it on the 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 sixteenth um, note. <laughs> That's where I put it. When I heard it. I know. I don't know how I could do it. Knowing what I know now, I don't even know how I could do it. But, you know, I didn't know anything back then.
0: Yeah. Well, to me, that's the beauty of the learning process. You know, you hear something and you work on it and, you know, you learn otherwise. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, there's, there's beauty in the simplicity also of, let's say I love Mozart, Haydn, timpani parts. Uh, Basically, you're just playing tonic and dominant, you know, but it's, it's just something about playing that simple parts like that. That's beautiful also.
1: And how it functions. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. So
0: As you progressed, would you say you favored timpani over percussion or percussion over timpani, or is it just what now
1: or then? No,
0: then, then,
1: then it was anything and everything. I didn't, I I dabbled in a little timpani. I need to actually ask my undergrad teacher, Bill Rice. Why did he think I would be a timpanist? Because I got a lot of timpani parts in undergrad. I could hear, yeah, but for whatever reason, maybe it was in our lessons and how much I cared about symphonic music Mm -hmm. could be the reason. But, you know, I really didn't specialize back then at all. I was taking more, I mean, fresh out of grad school or during grad school, I was taking any and all auditions and mostly percussion auditions. Uh Because even when I was playing in Detroit, as that extra and first call with the uh, fellowship, I was playing percussion 95% of the time. Right. Saul would let me come over every once in a while and play, and play timpani, but it was rare. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Did you feel stronger about one or the other, or it really didn't matter?
1: I mean, it seemed like you are
0: playing more percussion and probably studying more of that repertoire, or were you doing equal time?
1: No, I, I don't think I was doing equal time. If you look at the rep and percussion, I wasn't doing equal rep and timpani, no way. I see. But when I did play a timpani solo or, t- or percussion solo, whenever I played a timpani solo, however I played, it lended Bill Rice to maybe, here, here's some more. You know, I wasn't scared of timpani. Let's put right. it that
0: way. Right. It sounds like your musicality, he could hear that in your playing. It which, was something like that. You know, I can hear a very musical percussionist or not on bass drum, but when you have timpani, uh, and, and let's say a melodic, a tunable instrument, it, it's even more obvious, I yeah. would say. And then I was also going to say he probably noted that you could tune. Yeah. Because that would, that would be very important.
1: <laughs> so you right. got to give yeah. yourself some props, man. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. I, I just don't remember. You know, you go Well, you know, yeah.
0: Well, probably <laughs> because it came to you. It was not a big deal. You, right. you know, you, yeah. the orchestra and, tuned an A and you could tune an A.
1: And how I tune and teach my students to tune today is not how i learned to tune timpani in high school
0: right right i mean
1: my band director whatever note whatever note was the closest you just take that note and get the next note well are you in the key that you're supposed to be in you know <laughs> i mean he didn't know anything about timpani he just knew you needed to get, to get that note right but at any rate you know fourths and fifths first and you know the whole thing but when you, te- when you teach kids that, they really start to understand the circle with this, and they really start to understand internality and keys, the functionality of it.
0: Yeah, and I think one of our challenges as a professional and an educator is the students that have real issues with that, and then you have to dig a little deeper, and there's just some that don't have the ear.
1: That's true. You know,
0: and and what do you do? Where do you go with that? And how far do you push? And, you know, that's a tough thing. We've all probably had students that don't have the ear and yeah. it, it's, it's a difficult thing, let alone the musical sense, but yeah. also not being able to, uh, sing a pitch. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. That's a problem for timpani, you know? Yeah. 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 This,
1: yeah, I've only had two that couldn't sing the pitch, but they could get the drum to sing it Two students in 25, almost 30 years. I've never experienced that, where they yeah. could
0: not sing it, but they could tune it. They could and, tune it.
1: Well, that's good enough for me, man. <laughs> <It's> the,
0: <laughs> you don't need to be in the orchestra. You know? <laughs> that would be a double, and they're not going to pay us a double to do that. <laughs> <I> like, yeah. <laughs> we don't You're sing that
1: well. <laughs> yeah, can you sing? I said, I don't know how you did it, but I'm not going to ask questions because that's the right pitch. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, being black in your studio, at school, in an orchestra, uh, dealing with
1: conductors—anything in particular come up for you? Well, I'll, honestly, I'm extremely fortunate in the fact that all of my—I'm going to go come from high school, middle school, high school, undergrad, graduate school to professional. I didn't run into stuff until I got to professional level. Some of my biggest advocates and mentors were the conductor and undergraduate and, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll you know, um, Pat Rooney, Larry Ratcliffe. I mean, these were the conductors of uh, my institutions, of mm-hmm. James Madison University and Rice University. They were unbelievably supportive. Fantastic. And, and it was, and of course, Richard Brown and Bill Rice, they saw hands, they saw talent, they didn't see color. I don't know how they did because most a lot of people do. And it's unfortunate. I didn't run into that until I saw the clicks. Yeah. And if you know this person, you're probably going to be able to get into this festival. I see. If you know this person, if you, if you come from this person's studio, you'll probably be able to be extra with this summer, whatever. Right.
0: You know, and the first thing I think of is there's more at stake when we get
1: to this level. So Absolutely. That's why things like this rear up. I could go in depth, which I'm not going to with one of my last auditions, but cause I, after you get to a certain level, you know, you can play, you might doubt that at some time, but after a certain period and you, you see what you can do and you look back at who else, you know, you, you can play at any level. And then when you see the people who are getting some things, and you do a little research, it's it's easy to see what happened. Yeah. But it's the way it is. Yeah. That's that is the business. Yeah. And that is the also culture, and that's extremely unfortunate. There's a lot of talk going on, but action is not following that talk. So I'm talking about inclusiveness.
0: Yeah. And that takes us to where we are with ABOP. To have this mentorship program going now where we're actually guiding, directing some of the younger folks that, you know, want to follow in our paths. You know, it's been great to have you on board with this. You tell me, what are your thoughts of
1: what we're doing and where we're headed with ABOP? Well, it's so important that a person of color playing percussion, which is what we advocate, because as you know and i know when you say percussion in the first place you're last you're going to get the stand that wobbles because they start setting up the stands in the front of the orchestra right. until yep. they get to the back and i i went off one time on a stage and I, I didn't say get off go off i just said just for once <laughs> i want a sturdy stand like the first violins that's right. what i told him. right because right. I was serious. Because yeah. I see what happens. Right. You're going to get the wobbly chair. You are. Yeah. Uh, and people just don't know enough about percussion. I don't know if it's because they're scared of it or what, but it's just it's, it's the bottom of the totem pole. Exactly. Number one. Yeah. So we need to talk and be talked to as musicians. Well, we got to change the perspective of even composers. We get music and it doesn't have a change of key in it. And the conductor's going to say, hey, let's start the change of key. Or the tambourine player doesn't know what the change of key is because that's not in his music. I'm sorry. That's not okay. All of that stuff. They treat percussionists like third-class citizens or whatever. And that's unreal. And then when you get to, okay, yeah, now you're of color. (laughs) You need to see, which they are seeing. I mean, all of us founders, we, we went through it. We, we want them to stand on our shoulders and know that this is possible. And one of the best questions I received, I think, in an interview by one of the uh, proteges was, what would you do now differently at my age that you know now? Yeah. You know? And it's so true. And it's just to give them that information and keep passing that information on to them so that they can use it and use it to a way that's going to be beneficial as again we want to create a wonderful citizen not just a great musician
0: it goes hand in hand
1: absolutely you know i'm sure
0: we've all had colleagues that are great musicians but not necessarily someone you want to hang out with you know (laughs) exactly right yeah so what we're trying to do is not just teach teach and direct in music but the maturation program absolutely Maturity and being a professional in life, not just in an orchestra gig, but everything you're going to encounter and how you treat people, how people treat you. There's a certain way that would be a
1: good protocol. Absolutely. We're teaching problem solving skills that has that's not isolated to music. (laughs) No, you know,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: All that is is and when when a parent walks into my studio with a high school student or or middle school student, if they're to a level where I think they're gonna practice on their own, I let them know, you're gonna learn organizational skills. You're gonna learn communication skills. You're gonna learn skills to be able to listen. And all of those things are not isolated to music. Yeah, I think I I
0: recall when we had talked earlier that you had said, maybe one of your teachers, I don't know if it was Sal or which one, but they always asked you questions. Oh, they were Sal. like, they were oh. like, you know, never making statements, but just asking you questions. I do the same. And it's because I want the student to figure out what the hell is going on you know not for me to just keep repeating and saying the things but i need to hear them come up with why are we using a left hand here you know right my right is my strong hand why is he asking me to use my left hand It's to get them to develop their brain and get used to thinking and thinking things through. Don't just do things by habit, but do them for a reason and hopefully a good reason. So you had the same experience, right?
1: Yeah. When you, you, you know, when I get excited teaching and that's often, I mean, I have some really good students, I'll start saying, let me teach instead of tell. Because I'll be on the tip of my tongue, getting ready to tell them the answer, right? Right. And then I'll go retract and, and then ask the question to have them think about it. And I'll ask them if they play, if they played something, I'll say, okay, were you dragging? Was it right on, or were you rushing? Right. Well, most students don't give. Mo- most teachers don't give them. Was it right on? They'll say, were you dragging or were you rushing? Which means it was wrong. Right. I don't do that. I give them three choices Yeah. because if it was right on, they need to know it was.
0: Yeah. I like to stop them too and surprise them. I stopped you not because you did something I didn't like. That was fantastic. Exactly. You know, I want you to know that's what I hear. I want you to clue into what I hear so you can pick up on what I'm saying to you.
1: And you stop them right there because they're actually, hopefully feeling it right at that time. Right.
0: And then I'll say, okay, play it again. Let's see if you were lucky. Let's see if you can do that again. You know, you wanna repeat success. <laughs> I so... <laughs> love it. You mean I gotta play it again? Yes, yes, you gotta do it again, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Now that's putting you on the spot, but you know, that's what we want. We want that performance experience and so that they sweat it out in the practice room when they get on stage, no big deal.
1: Back to your, um going through uh, being black in, in an orchestra. Mm-hmm. I, I was in a predicament in one orchestra that I was uh, working a lot with. And it got so bad where I would, um, the principal wasn't re- re- really responsible. So when the folders came out with the assignments, I would take a picture of it. Well, one rehearsal, can't remember, the, I can't say the conductor, because you know the orchestra, um, we were rehearsing Fanfare. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't supposed to be playing and bass drum wasn't covered. Conductor goes off. I got through under the bus that It was my apartment. My, my, I was assigned to the part, bass drum part. And I wasn't, I went and showed the personnel manager. Mm-hmm. I mean, it finally, there must be some mistakes. And you know, they, they played it off like ridiculous, but the principal threw me under the bus right, right. because he was supposed to be playing. Oh. I couldn't. I couldn't believe it. But because I had taken a snapshot of it or made a photocopy of it, I don't know if we had phones back then or whatever, whatever. But I, I would copy the assignments. Right, right. Yeah, I was so heated, man. And when you know you were right, and they're calling, is they're the worst. Douglas, where's Douglas? He's playing. No, I know it was embarrassing.
0: Yeah, of course. And that's because I'm the new of, guy, too. You know, that's one of those things a conductor will remember. They don't remember that it was this person, this no. they, you, you no. ended up coming on stage and having to play the part. So right. it must have been your fault then, you know, exactly right. Yeah, well, so. obviously, it's great that you had documented it ahead of time, but I think the point is it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that you have to do something like right. that, right? So that's why I yourself. brought it up. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. Yeah.
1: So if, if you get into situations where things are happening, start taking pictures, documentation, recording. You have to do it.
0: Yeah. If there's anyone around you that saw the incident, you know, yeah. maybe you've got a witness or two. Yeah. Because if it just comes to you and the other person, well, you know, that might not be enough. Yeah. You know, especially if it's a principal or someone that has more, more years in the orchestra, they're gonna probably lean that way and say, whatever. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. These are some of the tough lessons we have to learn, you know. So on a different note, what if there was no music for you? Where would you be? I mean, I know you have a lot going on in your life. But would the other things fulfill you the way music does. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I've come to learn in how I practice with the world and the universe, Raynor, that I know that what I do is not who I am. And I love music, mm-hmm. um, but if I didn't have it or couldn't play it, it would not be the end of me and I wouldn't be depressed or wouldn't, it wouldn't change me so much just because I know that's not who I am. I see. Even if I didn't have Lotus Sound Bath, because that's music, man, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's great. Yeah, Which uh, alludes me to one of my one of your other questions, I think, about uh, your favorite gigs or whatever. Right. But if I didn't have that, I'd still, I would, I would, I would, and I'd do this more. Since I don't, you know, I still play with orchestras, but I don't um, have a, a chair at the moment. Mm-hmm. I will listen to music more more often now, because normally when we're playing, we're listening to study something, right? That we haven't played before. Right. But yeah, so I, I, I will find myself every once in a while listening to music for pleasure, which is, you know, rare when you have as much music as we have to learn. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
0: So speaking of that gig, So it's a two-way. You can take it either way. Or you can give me both answers. The first would be, what was a favorite gig that you did? And then the second would be, what would an ideal gig be like for you? A favorite gig?
1: Hmm.
0: That you can recall. That I can
1: recall. That you just walked away floating on air. It's one of those times when you play... You know, as much music as we play in the orchestra, when you're young, you don't understand this, but the orchestra, we're on pins and needles because we don't get any rehearsals in, even though you can do it, but you get that moment where the orchestra just sounds great. It just sounds so good that night. The conductor's doing what he needs to do. Everybody's just playing. This is a all a second reco- uh, performance. And it's just like you're just you're almost looking down at yourself as you're playing because it yeah, sounded yeah. so good right and it's, but you're in it yeah, and that's one that I ever called and there have been a few more, but they, they're just amazing when it locks in like that if you're rudimental play is what it sounds like when the snare drum line plays a role that's together and you can't <laughs> hear yourself right. You hear the whole role and you're you're inside the role because everybody's together. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I would add, I think you would agree, these moments are so special, but they're rare. They don't happen that often, you know? But when they happen, it's just, wow.
1: We're professionals and we do this all the time. Yeah. I remember a statement when I was in graduate school. And when I was in graduate school, you know, I had a fellow, Internship with the Houston Symphony it was great. I mean, the best of both worlds. I was getting my degree and playing with Houston on occasion, right, and being able to study and listen and, and, and all that stuff. It was great. I remember one of the violinists saying she was listening to a rehearsal that uh, Shepherd School we had, and I was I wasn't playing the piece, and I was out in the audience. She said, "I wish we," and she's she's a violinist in Houston Symphony. Mm-hmm. She said, "I wish we sounded that good sometimes." <laughs> and I do not understand what she meant, and she. And then we were talking, and she was like, "You know, we only get two rehearsals, three tops." And you know, when I f- first started playing orchestras, so of most most colleges, they'll do one or two concerts in the whole semester. I think Shepherd School we would do one a month or something like that, uh-huh. or one every three weeks. Right. which is that's a lot for college yeah um but that's a lot more rehearsals (laughs) you know you don't we don't get that kind of rehearsals in professional world and that's what she was talking about you just not even close you can't sound that tight
0: yeah well like you said for it to come together like that it has to be the right conductor yeah you know i to be honest they can't get in the way it has it, it has to be the right piece yeah and then the musicians—I mean, probably not every single one—but ninety-five percent of them have to be in that that groove, you know. Whatever, that day, that, that, right, that night. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to get all of them in there, but you know, if most of them are in there, and the conductor's not in the way, and we're just doing our thing, it's it's one of the great things. It's it's a natural drug without being yeah, a drug. Exactly. <laughs> a, when
1: it sounds that good, and you can you, and you feel it. I mean, you feel it because it's like you said, it's rare, but it's that good. Yeah,
0: Yeah. that's what what we strive for. That's what we, at least partly, that's what we play for, that's what we perform for, that's what we practice for. Otherwise, you know, it'd be different. I mean, you know, I think we'd probably do what we do, but there's a different thing. You wanna keep that goal very high and that, that level of whatever you do, Yeah we don't slack off you know that's what makes us professionals
1: well that's the always learning always growing that's the one thing that is wonderful in this industry now favorite ideal gig yeah i thought about that one hard man (laughs) but it would be douglas cardwell and and favorite friends or whatever and it would all be improv Mm. yeah It'd be on. classical oriented. It would be okay. African oriented. It would be anything oriented, but it'd be all improv and it'd be my favorite people I like to play with who are killer players and very nice to be around. Right. Right. I hope I would be honored to be a member of that. Onesop. Be- <laughs> that sounds I'd like that.
0: I'm in. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it.
1: And I keep growing with that because every sound bath is a solo. Wow, yeah. an improv solo for forty-five minutes, right? Yeah, yeah. and you just get immersed, and this, this, yeah, I love it.
0: There is an art to that, and as I'm sure you know, there is an art to silence. You, I'm sure you have moments where, after the resonance is gone, you just wait a little longer. You know, oh. because there's beauty in that too. Oh yeah. You know, one of my favorite parts and one of my favorite pieces is the Rite of Spring, but in the end, the sacrificial dance where there is that fermata over a bar. (laughs) To me, that is one of those moments where I really appreciate the silence. You know, it's so strong. It's so impactful to me, you know? yeah, it's not a playing moment. It's a part where we're not playing. It's brief, but still, ah, that's Stravinsky. He knew how to write music period. Gosh. my gosh. gosh. It's just like language and speaking. You know, you don't want to keep talking, talking, talking. You need pauses here and there. whether it emphasizes something. Or et cetera. It's, it's a part of our natural being. Well, some of us anyway. <laughs>
1: some people don't have that art, man. Yeah, I know
0: They need to listen to a few more pieces to, to get that same gift. Well, Douglas, thank you for sharing your thoughts, your experiences and your story with us. And of course, thank you for your work and time as an ABOP founder and mentor. You know, it means a lot to our proteges and it means a great deal to me.
1: Absolutely, man. It's my pleasure. Um, it's, a, it's a testament of what we believe in, even though it's trying at times, uh, you know, something that I think we wish we had a little bit more of that we're actually able to provide. So it's uh, special. So thank you for having me. And um, it's my pleasure.
0: What can I say? You know, if it was all smooth sailing, it wouldn't be good. Because, you right. know, almost anything that is beneficial takes some hard work and... That's what we got, but it's beneficial.
1: So thank you, brother. Right on. My pleasure, man.
0: That concludes my discussion with ABOP founder and mentor, Mr. Douglas Cardwell. I hope you enjoyed listening. Please follow our podcast and check us out on our website at www.abop.us. We greatly appreciate your support. We are the Alliance of Black Orchestral Percussionists. ABOP.